Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You are listening to Killer. This is case number 26. Lisa R. Snyder. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Eric Bubba Moyer's pager went off about 4.30 p.m. on September 23rd, and the text asked if he was available to respond to a home along Route 143 in Albany Township where two children were in cardiac arrest. Bubba Moyer was employed at the time as an emergency room nurse at Lehigh Valley Hospital near Allentown, but he was off duty, so he was available to respond from his home that afternoon as a volunteer first responder for the nearby Kempton Fire Company. He went out to his truck and on the radio, he heard the tail end of a dispatch from Berks County 911 Center. He couldn't immediately process what he heard. A dispatcher said two children were hanging in the basement. He asked several times for the dispatcher to repeat that information. Five plus five five nine zero from the caller. Both children are there. Hung in their unknown time at this time. Burks, can you repeat that? Four one. Both children are hanging in the basement. Burks, Captain forty four one. Captain forty four. Any indication from the caller if the scene is safe or how these children ended up there? She mentioned that the eight year old has been bullied and has made threats of doing this, but didn't want to go alone. And sounds like he may be the aggressor of the situation. At this time, it should just be the mother of the two children on scene. Bubba and Moyer proceeded cautiously to the home along Route 143, meeting with another first responder at a residence across the street from the home. He said he was concerned about the safety of the responders because the scene wasn't secured. State police had not yet arrived from the Hamburg station. The pair approached the home and found no one, including the 911 caller Lisa Snyder, in front of the home as they were told to expect. They knocked on the door, not knowing what to expect, and Snyder opened it. They asked her to step outside. Snyder appeared very anxious and nervous, but she wasn't crying and was distracted by talking on a mobile phone. Bub and Moyer asked if anyone else was in the house, but he couldn't get an answer. So he and the other medic entered the home together. They found no one on the main floor, so they proceeded down the narrow basement steps. They scanned the right side of the basement and found nothing. But when Bub and Moyer looked left, he saw two children hanging from the rafters. Their bodies were still warm, so the medics decided to free them from the nooses which were at opposite ends of a vinyl-coated dog lead, the kind used to tether a dog to a stake or a fixed object in the yard. Bubba and Moyer's partner was able to release the clasp on his end and free the smaller child, Brinley,
But the brother, Connor, he was too heavy for Bub and Moyer to lift. His partner assisted in lowering Connor to the floor, and the two began CPR on the siblings. Trooper Jeffrey A. Hummel of the Hamburg Station was the first police officer to arrive. From the witness stand, he described a chaotic scene. With Snyder and relatives in front of the home and several people gathered in the kitchen, he remembered someone saying, they're all in the basement. He had to crouch to descend the wooden stairs to the basement. Making a left turn, he was greeted by the sight of medics working on Brindley, on her back on the floor. Closer to him was the unconscious Connor. McCollum asked Hummel what he did upon seeing such a scene. There really wasn't much I could do other than stay out of the way, Hummel said. Eric had everything under control. I offered to take over CPR and do chest compressions. Those first responders were exhausted. Due to Connor's weight, which was well above average for his age, responders decided that it would be difficult to carry him up the narrow stairs. They decided to go out the Bilco doors via fewer steps. Hummel and another trooper helped carry him out on a stretcher to an ambulance. They were declared brain dead by a Lehigh Valley Hospital doctor three days later and pronounced dead. The pathologist who performed the autopsies found both children died of hanging and the manner of their deaths was consistent with homicide. That's a lot to take in right off the top there. These officers walk into a pretty grisly and disgusting scene with two children hanging in the basement, and, you know, not much else is really known at this time. It's pretty a pretty rough scene. Craig, where did this happen? Is this in Pennsylvania? Yes, it was in Pennsylvania. It's fairly a recent case that's currently, I believe, getting set to go to trial. So this is, from a date perspective, it's really pretty recent. Yeah, I don't know how these first responders handle things like this. Like, this would torment me for life walking into this scene. I don't think I would sleep after this. I don't know about you. No, that was exactly my same thought and was hoping that's that's where your head was when we stopped to discuss at this point is I can't imagine. I mean, hats off to people who do this for a living. And this this guy was a volunteer EMT and then walking into a scene and seeing something like this in somebody's basement. There's there's so many questions right in the door. The mom's on the phone talking, not really giving them any answers. Seems nervous but not freaked out. But then they go downstairs and find two very young children hanging from the rafters. It's just this stuff has to scar people for life. Yeah, and you hear in the nine one one call, the first responder is just like asking repeatedly, "What? Wait, what?" how'd this happen? You know, he's like super confused. And I mean, I would be too. He's the shock of what he was hearing was bad enough. And then you, you know, arrive on scene and have to actually witness it too. You know, that's a, that's a pretty terrifying ordeal to, to have to come to grips with right off the bat. I can't speak for these first responders, but that has to be like their, their ultimate fear is walking into a scene where it involves children. I just, I can't process in my head how I would feel about walking into something like that and seeing something like that. They said when they uh, went over to to the victims, their bodies were still warm. They hadn't they hadn't been there very long, so they they obviously switches gears into life saving mode and doing CPR and and getting them down. Yeah, and the other interesting thing you know about all of that is so Lisa Snyder makes the phone call, and we made brief reference to that. She's she lives in the house, you know. They're asking, like, you know, who else is there? And Lisa Snyder's there, right? She made the phone call. She's also the mother of these two kids, and you don't really hear much about her at this point. They just go in and start dealing with the kids. So as I was reading 
all this information here, one thing that kept standing out is they keep mentioning, you know, about Connor and his weight. For his age, his percentile or his age group, he was way above the chart in that respect. Yeah, he was a pretty, pretty good size little boy. And from what I could tell, you know, he was eight years old and his sister was four. So if that information that I have is correct, he was probably a solid, you know, 150 for an eight-year-old. You know, when they mentioned that a few times, you know, in some of the research that we were doing, I just, I was like, well, how big is this kid? You know, he can't be that big. And then sure enough, he's pretty heavy. Uh, His mother's pretty heavy as well. So uh, I thought that was, you know, just an interesting point. Yeah, hang tight. That plays into the rest of the story here to come. And even in the 911 call, to me, it was really sad to hear that the way this story unfolds compared to what we heard in that 911 audio, it, to me, it's a little bit gut-wrenching that they feel like this eight-year-old boy was the aggressor and there was something going on there. They're not blaming him, but they're kind of pointing to him as being the person who hung his sister and then hung himself in that call, him being the aggressor, as they put it in the call. So there's more to tie into all that discussion around him being a larger kid for his age and and the way things unfold. Hummel began to choke up when McCollum showed him a previously taken photograph of a smiling Connor and Brindley, asking him to verify if they were the children he saw clinging to life in the basement. Hummel said he spoke to the children's mother at the scene. Lisa Snyder told him that Connor was being bullied at school and one morning didn't want to go to school, he said. She said she called a school guidance counselor about the bullying, but didn't get a return call. Hummel said that Snyder told him her son appeared stressed when he got off the school bus that day and asked for the charger for his iPad so he could play games. Connor couldn't find the charging cord, so he asked his mother if he could borrow the dog lead that she had purchased at Walmart earlier in the day. She told the trooper that Connor wanted to build a fort in the basement with his sister. His plan, she told police, was to latch the ends around the rafters and drape a large blanket over it, according to the testimony. Testimony from the prosecution witnesses, including a relative of Lisa Snyder, contradicted her claims that Connor was depressed and that he was even being bullied at all. Her cousin, Kimberly Watson, age 20, said that she was particularly close to Connor and she would talk to him almost every week. In the summer, she would spend a lot of time with him, hanging out with him at his home. She last saw Connor a week before the hangings. That was right after his mother sent out a group message via Facebook to family members, telling them that Connor was being bullied and was suicidal. Snyder asked the family members to help Connor and show him love, Watson said. She picked him up after school that day to get a sense of how he was feeling. Watson didn't notice any signs of distress. I said, are you happy I picked you up? And he said, yeah, but I like I do like riding the bus. I have a lot of friends on the bus, Watson said. She observed him for the rest of the day at her family's business, where Connor spent a few hours until his mother picked him up. He never looked sad that day, Watson said. Another prosecution witness, Jessica Sempt at Sladington, Carbon County, who said that she knows Lisa Snyder through her husband, described a text she received from Snyder in early October, about a week before the hangings. In it, Snyder said that she, quote, needed to have two strong drinks, end quote. So Connor is, according to his mother, being bullied at school and coming home depressed. And you can start to see there's like a little pattern starting to develop here if you're getting suspicious of the uh, mother. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with Lisa's cousin saying that she picked him up from school and didn't seem to be anything wrong with him that day. Just that little short 
description of how he was feeling that day from what she observed sound like it was just another day and he would have rather rode the bus because he had friends on the bus. Yeah, exactly. And the convenient, I need my iPad charger turns into I need a dog lead. That was a bit strange to me <laughs> as I was reading this. It's, it's like, what? <laughs> how do you go from an iPad charger to a dog lead? To me, it's it's just she backpedals a lot trying to cover her tracks. That's just the feeling I get. I'm not trying to say, yeah, she's 100% did it. But I think as we go down through here, we we'll, we definitely start seeing the pattern unfold even more. Yeah, so let's continue on. She drove to Sam's home and said investigators had been to her home several times looking for a cell phone. She expressed anxiety over what investigators would likely find in online searches under Connor's account because she was looking up how to kill someone. Snyder said she was considering checking herself into a psychiatric hospital because she was depressed. If she were to be charged with the murders, she would get out on bail and kill herself, Simph testified. Trooper Ian Keck, a criminal investigator who filed the charges against Snyder, said Trooper seized one cell phone, which was issued to her for being on a public assistance but they have been unable to recover a Samsung smartphone that belonged to Snyder. None of the electronic communication devices seized from the home as a result of the search warrant contained internet searches that Snyder is believed to have made, he said, leading investigators to infer that the missing Samsung phone held a lot of evidence. On the day of the hanging, Snyder claimed that she lost the phone the previous day, Keck said. She changed her account a week or so later, claiming that she lost the phone more than a month earlier. Keck said investigators interviewed people at Connor's school, Greenwich Elementary, to try to validate Snyder's account that he was being bullied and stressed out at school. Everyone from the principal to the guidance counselor to students described him as friendly and happy. They even viewed video footage from bus cameras. The afternoon that his mother claimed he was so distressed and he decided to take his own life, footage showed contradictory images. Connor horsing around with other kids on the bus, Keck said, smiling and waving as he ran off the bus to his home. Keck testified. Connor's mother was the only person investigators could find who had any knowledge of the alleged bullying, Keck said. So right there is what I find to be incredibly interesting is they actually go back to the bus footage to see what's going on with Connor. They're in his school. They're trying to check out this depression angle, right? And anymore, you know, these days, people take this depression stuff pretty seriously and they don't really question you a whole lot. But in this case, they're not quite believing this story. So here we are, you know, and they're going through and doing their full due diligence. And I think that this is a great example of police doing an excellent job in their duties, you know, going through and investigating this as seriously as possible, because we all know there's been several cases we've covered where police just shrug things off like it's no big deal. So I'm really glad to see that they're going this extra mile, digging in, finding inconsistencies in her story just simply by checking out Connor's day-to-day routine. 100%. This is something that I'm I'm glad to see that they did not like push off to the side. And like you said, their school and administration nowadays with you know the focus on bullying, the focus on, you know, child depression, things like that. They really work hard with therapists at school and with guidance counseling and it paints an interesting picture to me that no one can put this depression thing together. As Lisa has mentioned, that supposedly Connor was suffering from, but nobody else sees it other than her. And she even alluded to the fact that she herself had suffered from depression and wanted to be checked in. And if she bailed out, she would just kill herself. So she's trying to, she's trying that, that angle of something's going on mentally with her. 
if it does blow back on her, that she had an issue, you know, prior to anything happening to her kids. Yeah, and it's really strange. You know, they also talk about the Samsung phone, which I don't know if I was quite clear. Maybe I just wasn't paying close attention there. But how did they know that she had the Samsung phone? Did they say? From what I'm reading into it is it sounds like they know that there were records of her having this phone on another account or something like that. And then conveniently this phone comes up missing. So then she switches things on her account over to a new phone. Right around the time this this all happened, this mystery phone just up and disappears, which they feel believes holds the information to her searches and things that she was doing online. So she has an Obama phone and loses this mystery Samsung phone, right? Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Some of that doesn't make sense to me, though. Going back to what we do for a living, it doesn't matter what phone you use or what account. Well, it does matter what account. I mean, from a wireless provider account, it doesn't really matter. But if she was logged on or signed into her browser as herself or even as Connor, regardless of what device it was, 99.9% sure she probably was using Google for these searches. That history's there. Doesn't matter what device. To a degree. So you could do you could do a couple of things, right? So first of all, there's no, we don't know for sure what search engine she was using. So that's one big one. But even so, that doesn't really matter. The internet history is available pretty much everywhere all the time through your internet service provider. So they could, and maybe they did, and we just haven't heard about it yet because maybe it's evidence they haven't chosen to disseminate. But And this might be why they know or care about the Samsung device, right? Because they may have records of these searches or vague records that don't quite give you the full detail of what she searched, but they may know that she went out, you know, off this phone and was visiting this site. Maybe they don't have the detail. I don't know what they can glean, you know, from the ISP directly. But if she didn't log into an account or maybe use the private browsing mode or whatever, where it doesn't quite keep exactly everything, you know, around, I mean, here's the thing. So you're never private on the internet, period. End of story. So when you're out there searching, it doesn't matter. Somebody's got your information. So your internet service provider almost always has everything that you've ever done, but who knows what records are keeping it for how long. So they may be running into some of that. The other thing is she may not have signed into any accounts, so they can't just simply go find her account on another device and then go see what else she was searching on the other ones, right? So, like, you know, everybody connects their Google accounts together, and so you can get on your work computer and log into your your stuff on your work computer, but then you go home and you're signed in, and, like, all that stuff syncs up, right? So some people like to do that. She maybe didn't do that in this case at all. Maybe she stayed signed out completely. Because it sounds like, from everything that we're reading up to this point, Whatever she was up to sounded pretty premeditated. So, you know, she may have been planning this out for some time and knew better. She obviously got rid of the Samsung phone. So she was planning something, it seems like. It's convenient that this phone is suddenly missing, but investigators are very interested in it. We're missing some sort of link there as to what they're after, or how they know about it, or what they know about it, in my opinion. But, you know, she was smart enough to get rid of it so that they couldn't point the finger directly at her for doing something off that device. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes out in evidence. I, I think we might be talking before things, talking out of turn in a sense, before things are actually presented in the case during trial. So this is definitely a, a case that we'll have to 
keep tabs on and provide updates moving forward as things progress. Yeah, for sure. And it is it is interesting, you know, this missing Samsung phone, what it holds. Uh, I would love to know what they're after. You know, if, if something set a red flag where they're like, hey, we need to look at this thing. Or they just knew that she had it and they want to look at it anyway. Because they may well have far more information off of her existing devices than what we know about right now. And they're just holding back on what they have because they're going to, you know, use that in court. But, you know, it's just one of those interesting aspects to this case of, you know, the this, this Samsung phone goes missing all of a sudden and no one knows where it's at. And her story has changed. She lost it, you know, the day before or whatever. And then suddenly it's like, oh, no, I lost it like a month ago. <laughs> so how convenient. Yeah, the the dots are definitely not connecting there with what she's feeding to investigators. All right, let's continue on. Troopers talked to Connor's occupational therapist, who cast doubt upon the notion that Connor was physically capable of fastening a dog lead around his own neck, let alone his sister's. Connor lacked dexterity and had trouble finding the center of his shoelaces to tie in a decent knot, the therapist told the investigators. Yet the ends of the dog lead were found hanging fairly evenly in relation to each other, Keck said. Snyder's explanation for getting a new dog lead was itself questionable, Keck said, noting that troopers were already stepping over and getting entangled by a dog lead in the backyard. But Snyder told investigators that she wanted one for the front yard, Keck said. The dog lead she chose was purple and was rated for a maximum of 250 pounds, more than twice the capacity of her old lead, even though there were plenty of purple leads for 95 to 125 pounds available at the same store at that time. Internet searches linked to the number connected to Snyder's missing phone showed she visited a site that gave instructions on how to hang oneself with a short drop, single suspension, Keck said. While searching Snyder's online accounts, troopers found pictures that she shared with a man showing her forcing a dog to perform sex acts on her. For that, she was charged with bestiality and cruelty to animals, charges that were also held over for court. Snyder's private attorney, David Charles, of Allentown, argued at the end of the hearing that the Commonwealth doesn't have a murder case against his client. Prosecutors failed to produce any evidence or testimony that Snyder killed or planned to kill her children and have filled in the holes with speculation, he said. McCallum said that some murder cases are built on circumstantial evidence and Snyder's account simply makes no sense. There would likely be more evidence, she said, had Snyder not gotten rid of one of her phones. It wasn't all adding up to me, Bub and Moyer said Wednesday from the witness stand in the Berks County Courthouse, where Lisa R. Snyder, 37, sat for a preliminary hearing on two counts of first-degree murder in the slayings of her two youngest children, Connor, 8, and Brinley, 4. Bub and Moyer was the first of seven witnesses called to testify by Berks County Assistant District Attorney Meg McCollum. After the four-hour hearing, District Judge Kim L. Bagenstos ruled that Snyder should be held for trial on all charges, including two counts each of first- and third-degree murder and child endangerment. Other charges include endangering the welfare of children and tampering with or fabricating physical evidence. State police filed the charges on December 2nd following a more than two-month investigation. Snyder was arrested the same day and jailed without bail. First-degree murder is a non-bailable offense in Pennsylvania. So in summary, we have Lisa Snyder, who, as we later find out, you know, police did have access to her search history. So like you said, Craig, she was able to or she must have used some accounts where they did get that information, but they still want that cell phone. There's something on it that they're after or think they might find, or maybe they're just interested in what other inter- you know information they could glean from that phone. So it looks like 
you know, you have some search history with some suspect searches on there, this mysterious dog lead that she didn't need, rated to hold a lot of weight. So what's her daughter probably weigh like 40 pounds tops. Her son weighs probably close to 150. So you've got about a 200 pound weight there. The lead was rated for 250. How convenient. Things just aren't adding up, you know, in her favor there. And in my opinion, she's definitely, I would say she's pretty damn guilty. Um, I just don't see an eight-year-old hanging his sister and hanging himself. And I just don't know. <laughs> the kid could barely tie his shoes. I don't think he's tying nooses. Right. The occupational therapist even alluded to that, that she didn't think that he had the motor skills to to fabricate or put something together, you know, that elaborate. One dog lead to hang two people from a rafter. It just sounds above, above his level of, of even thinking of how he would do something like that. Let alone I, with, with no signs, if going back to the depression thing and her alleged statements around his depression and being bullied at school, I don't think that a sibling, even at that young age, eight and four, that's what this whole case kind of struck me as, you know, it hits right square in the heart when you think about two children this young passing away. But somebody like Connor would have had to have a lot of hard feelings in his heart toward his sister to do something like that to somebody so young. I just don't see it. I just, it just doesn't add up. No, and there's no history there to indicate that he would do it. If you're depressed, you know, nine times out of 10, when someone's depressed, they take their own life. They don't take someone else's life. They kind of do it in seclusion. They leave some kind of sign or note or something. You know, there's a lot more to a lot of these suicide cases than what was being presented here. And, you know, a lot of things in this case just don't add up to me. You know, you have two children hanging from the rafters in the basement. So you're telling me that this eight-year-old was able to hang his sister and lift her up off the ground and then hang, like, I don't know the exact specifics of how they found them and how they were hanging. You know, I heard what we, you know, obviously what we've read and what we described, but I still like, I don't have a quite the visual on how the pair were hanging up together. You know what I mean? And so I'm not quite clear on how that was configured. And if it was, how would, how would he do this? He's eight years old. Is I guess what I'm getting at. So I just don't see that happening. Yeah. That's what I, I was kind of alluding to. I don't think that he could set up something so elaborate. To me, it sounds like when they brought in the occupational therapist to discuss, you know, his dexterity and his motor skills. And I'm thinking to myself, how can one person hang, hang themselves and another person with one dog lead? It has to be something along the lines of the dog lead is long enough to where you can start to wrap it around the rafter. And we alluded to this earlier in the case that it was even on both ends. So what someone would have had to have done was wrap it from the center and wrap it in opposite directions. So there was enough slack on both ends to be able to form up some kind of noose on each end of it from one lead. That's pretty elaborate and pretty time consuming way to do it. And to be able to do it in a well enough manner to hang one person and then hang yourself. I just don't see it happening. I I think if that is how this thing was set up and devised, one person did this and hung both of those children at the same time. Well, yeah, and that's where I was going to go next. So let's just assume that she's guilty and she did it, right? You know, how would how would that have gone down? You know, that kid was pretty heavy. And, I mean, she's a big woman herself. But how, 
high up off the ground were they? You know, like how did this even? What did it look like? It not to be grotesque, but just more out of curiosity for the process. You know, how did you? How would one get two kids weighing vastly different weights hanging up into the you know off the ceiling like that? I just it it couldn't have been an eight year old. I guess is really what I'm trying to get to here. Yeah, I agree. Everything points to her doing this, and she would have had to have them stand on something and then remove it from out under them. That's the only way possible, because we're talking about two EMTs. I mean, yes, Connor was, he was overweight by all accounts in this in this story, but it took two guys to get him down. One person could not, he was too heavy for one guy to lift, to try to loosen and take up some of the, the tension from the noose to get him down. It took two people. Right, and how did she get him up in the first place? Like, did she, like, force him volunteer? you know, like, force him to stand on a chair and was like, get up here? You know, like, what was the scene like prior to this happening is what I want to know. Yeah, it's pro- that's unfortunately probably something we'll never know. She could have been yelling at them. They could have been in trouble, and she said, get up there, and then wrapped it around their neck and, and pulled whatever they were standing on out from under him. I just... Yeah, so do you think that she had all of this staged up in the basement ready to go, forced her kids downstairs for whatever reason, basically telling them they're in trouble, get them to stand on something, and then just whipped a noose out around their neck and kicked the whatever out from under them, and then, bam, they dropped, you know? And like you've seen on the TV shows and stuff when they do that. Yeah, I, I believe that that's what happened. We can't say for sure, obviously, but, I mean, it's... I I just can't believe somebody's mindset, especially when you're dealing with your own children, how you could do that to your own children. And I read in some other articles where I think she has an older child as well, somebody that's closer to adulthood. I think they might have been 16 or 17. Don't quote me on that, but I know she has an older child as well from another relationship. But what kind of mindset does a parent have to be in to do that to their children, I guess, is where I'm getting at. Why? Why and how? It just... When I started reading this, it was just crazy. Yeah, my son's four. And, you know, because we do these podcasts all the time, I oftentimes find myself thinking about how could somebody harm this little child? He's so innocent. You know, he still falls for stupid jokes. Like, you know what I mean? They're just so innocent, so fragile. And how could you do that to somebody like that? I just don't. You have to be on some kind of next level mentally fucked up state because like you just look at the they're like the kid could piss you off to the nth degree and the last thing on my mind is i'm gonna kill this kid you know what i mean like you have to be next level fucked up to get there and i'm glad you brought that up i mean we kind of gleaned past the fact that she was also charged with bestiality for having sexual encounters with her dog there were a lot of articles where they were much more explicit in the way that they described that interaction with her pet. But I didn't want to throw that in here because I didn't want to distract away from the fact that this is a mother potentially doing this to her children. I mean, there is something obviously mentally wrong with this person. All right, so let's break break it down for us because I did not get into the weeds, into the bestiality, but uh, forewarning anyone from this point forward, it could be pretty disgusting. You have the floor, my man. Go for it. Yeah, I don't I don't have some of those accounts verbatim in front of me to read, but from what I read, you know, she had several interactions where she's quoted as saying, "Well, 
I, I, I don't remember what the dog's name is. And she's like, well, he went for it. So I just let him talking about her dog being in bed with her. And she sent apparently said, sent some of the pictures of the dog doing this to her, to some of her so-called friends, either be, either be it on social media or directly to some of them in a text message through a phone or through a picture in a text message, which just, that alone blows my mind how somebody could do that. I mean, it kind of paints the picture of their, their mental capacity at the time. Something's definitely wrong. I mean, yeah. Did you find if they ever got pictures like evidence wise from the investigation? I think they do have pictures that she had sent of her with the animals. And I, but the, coming back full circle to this missing phone, I mean, they have her search history. They they know some things that she looked up, even under his account. I mean, it's, we've alluded to this before. It's easy to sign under somebody else's account and look for some bad stuff. I think the reason they wanted that phone is there was picture. There's possibly pictures of what she'd done and what what she had done in that basement to those children, and that's why they want the phone. I don't know that it's anything to do with search history or whatever. If somebody's out of their not in their right mind and thinks it's okay to take pictures of their dog doing things to them like this and sending it to people. You have to believe she took pictures of what happened in that basement as well. That's a very great point. That didn't even cross my mind. You're one sick individual, sir. I mean, in all seriousness, it didn't cross my mind at all that she was photographing what was going on in that basement. But yeah, with the bestiality stuff that was going on that she was photographing, She's very likely to have photographed that as well. And many, you know, killers or murderers do, you know, their trophy, you know, ritual kind of thing. And it's definitely not out of the realm of possibility that she was doing that same thing here. The The worst part about this whole thing is, too, with some of the statements that she made, if if she got out of the psychiatric hospital, she would kill herself. She's she's already premeditating what's going to happen during the trial and how she's going to play this up to jurors where she's going to she's going to take the low road and and plead insanity. I mean, it's the writings on the wall in my mind. And I guess let's go here for a moment. The insanity plea. What do you think about that? I think it's overused, but I think if you have psychiatric professionals that do a full evaluation of a person, there's a lot of times where, you know, I think they get it right. I don't know if it's, it's, it has to be really difficult for them to, to look back in time and say, yes, at this date and at this time, this person was clinically insane, you know, based on my observations, because the person wasn't there. You're just trying to glean facts out of them as you're interviewing them and talking to them. It's a slippery slope. So in my mind, if you're going to commit premeditated murder, you're insane. But that doesn't mean you get off. I don't want these people in society. Period. End of story. They deserve to be in prison. I don't care if you're mentally ill or not. Because you're mentally ill only makes it worse. You should not be in society at that point. I don't care that you're mentally ill. You're a danger to the vast majority of people that you come in contact with if you're that unhinged, right? No, I completely agree. It's just too bad that these people that are so unhinged that they would do something like this to their own children aren't that this isn't discovered before it happens. I know that you got to be careful talking about, you know, mental illness and things like that, because it's a very prevalent topic right now in today's society as well. It is, but I still don't think that there's room for these people who commit premeditated murder type stuff to walk around afterward. You know, like 
you still murdered. Like at the end of the day, murder is murder. It's like the highest crime you could commit, right? And I just don't think that you deserve to be out in society, whether you're mentally ill or not, because at that point, I mean, you're a danger to people and you committed murder. Murder's a crime. Murder doesn't care if you're insane or not. You know what I mean? You took someone's life and you could do it again. What's going to stop you from doing it twice if you got away with it the first time? Exactly. And you weren't crazy enough to do all of the research on how to suspend, kill somebody, going and buying a dog lead, planning this whole thing out, trying to fabricate a story of all things to blame your eight-year-old child for what has happened because you're the one that's messed up. That's even more disgusting. You're going to blame an eight-year-old. Right. I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's the, the one thing about this whole story that really pisses me off is she tried to allude to the fact that her eight-year-old son was the one that was messed up enough to kill his sister and kill himself. Yeah, that's what got me mad, too, was, you know, let's blame the eight-year-old for my adult terrible decision-making, and on top of the fact that, add insult to injury, I murdered them myself, allegedly. Right. And I think this whole mental illness with Snyder in this particular case is it's going to become more prevalent because some of the, the latest articles I read, and we didn't include the information here, because like I said, I think we'll have an update to the case. I think they're recommending the death penalty for this person, which I th- believe in this case is fully justifiable. 100%. On that note, we are going to leave you for today. So all of you out there in quarantine land, stay safe. <laughs>